Andrew Womack Ministries presents part one in the Killing Sacred Cows series, a five-part album. This teaching by Andrew is titled, God is Good, God is Faithful. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today I'm going to begin a brand new series, and I hadn't taught this in a long time, but I'm going to be talking about killing sacred cows. And I've got a picture of a cow with a wooden leg and a crutch here with a chef chasing him. You know, the, the logic behind this is uh, I remember being in India back, boy, this would have been in 1980 or somewhere around there. And uh, I remember I was holding a meeting in a person's home and it was a relatively small place, but we had a hundred people crammed in there. It was hot. And so as a result, uh, you know, they had the doors open, the windows open, and it was really hot in there. And in this part of India, you know, there were sacred cows that you couldn't kill. I mean, there was just Brahma bulls walking down the street. And one walked into this house while I was in this living room with a hundred and something people and everybody just got out of the way and let it go because you couldn't do anything to it. It was a sacred cow. Many of these people were hungry and doing without because they couldn't kill these cows because they were sacred. The Hindus believed in reincarnation and thought that it could have been an uncle or a, a grandfather or something reincarnated as a cow. So anyway, there was all of this meat on the hoof and yet people starving, dying of starvation and they couldn't do anything because it was a sacred cow. And, um, so anyway, uh, this is where this title comes from. There's a lot of sacred cows. You know, the body of Christ is suffering in some areas and they can't understand why, it's, but, it, but it's because we have these, what I call sacred cows, these doctrines that make the Word of God of none effect. Let me share some scripture with you here. Jesus was talking in Mark chapter 7, says, He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. You know, before we go any further, let me just say that Jesus was not politically correct. I mean, Jesus just called a spade a spade. Today, we are so afraid to counter things, and this is one of the things that Satan uses to steal truth. And the word from us is that people have become apologetic about speaking the truth. But Jesus wasn't that way. He said, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things do ye. And, you know, basically this is just talking about that the Lord in the Old Testament established that there were some things that you were supposed to do, but the uh, Pharisees of Jesus' day had amplified on it to the point that you had all of these rituals that you had to go through. And they had gotten so far away from the heart of what God was saying that it had just, um, you know, had totally changed the point that God was making in the Old Testament. And then he uses an example hear about the way that the Scripture said we were supposed to honor our father and mother. In verse 9 it says, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whosoever curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother. 
In other words, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, is honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land. And yet they had come up with this thing that if you take the money that you could have used to support your parents and if you gave it to the temple, to the work of the Lord, then that exempted you from your obligation to your parents. So if a person, say for instance, didn't like their parents, was rebelling at their parents, and yet the scripture said that you've got to take care of your aging parents, all you had to do is take the money that you would have spent on your parents, dedicate it to the Lord, and you could have absolved that you could get absolved of that responsibility. And so therefore, a person could sit there and disobey the Word of God because of their tradition that if you'll just dedicate this money to the Lord, give it to the temple, that you're exempt from this obligation to your parents. And that was completely getting around what God intended. And the next verse says, Jesus was speaking, He says, You make the Word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered, and many such like things do ye. And so Jesus here was saying that the Word of God is voided, made of none effect through traditions and doctrines of men. So what I'm going to begin to talk about is just about the goodness of God. But then we have these traditions and doctrines of men that make the Word of none effect. I really believe that if we just believe that God is a good God, and that God loved us unconditionally. If we could believe that without anything negating that, diluting it, taking away from that, I believe it would solve every problem that you've got. It would be impossible for you to be depressed if you really knew that God loved you and that His love for you is steadfast and it's not going to change. The Bible says in Galatians 5, 6 that faith works by love. If we really knew how much God loved us, your faith would go through the roof. You would be healed. You would be blessed. If you are struggling, it's because you really don't believe that God loves you. You might intellectually say, oh yes, He loves me, but you don't believe He loves you enough that He's going to take care of it. Over in First uh, John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Perfect love cast out fear. If you have fear about you're going to fail, God's not going to come through, you aren't going to get healed, your finances aren't going to be met. You can say what you want, but if you had the perfect love of God operating you, you would not have any fear. Perfect love cast out fear. If you're worried and anxious about things, over in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, casting all of your care upon Him because He cares for you. If you understood how much He cared for you, you would not take care. And I know that there are some of you saying, well, I know that God cares for me. I know that God loves me, and yet I've still got fear. I'm still afraid that this isn't going to work out. It's because you've got something that has diluted and taken away from your revelation of God just being a good God. And just like Jesus was saying right here, it's traditions and doctrines of man. Did you know that there's a lot of things in the world? I mean, we live in a fallen world, and you just have things happen. I've got friends that have lost a son and a father within just months of each other. They died. And did you know that just life, when you see things like this happen, it doesn't look like God cares. And you could, have, you could get the wrong message from that. You could think, does God really care? Is God really intervening? Is God answering my prayers? And so there's just natural life, just things in the natural that happen that can war against us understanding how much God loves us. But then 
The worst thing is religious traditions and doctrines of men where they come along and teach that God is actually blessing you by having this person die. It's God that loves you so much He made you sick and on and on like this. And I believe that religious traditions are the most damaging because they are being promoted in the name of the Lord and they're misrepresenting God. And I tell you, if you swallow these lies, it'll turn people against God. That's the reason this teaching of God is talking about killing sacred cows. We have enough opposition uh, just from the world and from the living in a fallen world and all of the things that come against us that constantly are trying to tell us that God is not for us. But then if you add to that the religious traditions that come along and says God is the one who is the source of all of your troubles. I tell you, that's bad. And so what I'm going to do is just take a bunch of these religious traditions, what I call sacred cows, and we are going to kill them. And you know what? There's no easy way to do this. I can't ease into this. I can guarantee you I'm going to offend a lot of people with what I say, but I'm also going to set a lot of people free if you'll receive what I've got to say. You know, this little uh, cartoon that I've got on the cover here where you got a cow with a wooden leg. This comes from a story that I was told one time about a traveling salesman driving through the country and he saw a cow that had a wooden leg. And he was so shocked by this that he just stopped. He went back and he knocked on the door of this farmhouse and he asked this farmer, he says, I saw this cow with a wooden leg in your pasture. He says, what is the story? He says, I'm just curious. I want to know what happened. And he said, well, this is a very special cow. He says, there was a time that my children were playing in one of the, you know, stock tanks and they got out there and one of them started drowning and this cow heard him yelling. And so the cow waded out in to the stock tank, they grabbed hold of the cow and he pulled them out of the stock tank, saved their life. Says it, they would have drowned if it hadn't been for this cow. And the guy said, well, that's amazing. I've never heard anything like that, but that still doesn't explain why it has a wooden leg. And he says, well, there was another time that we were you know, in the house and we were asleep and the house caught on fire and we didn't have any smoke detectors or alarms or things like that. But this cow made such a noise and broke down the front door that it woke us up and we were able to escape. And this cow saved our life and says the whole family is indebted to this cow. We would have all been dead if it hadn't been for this cow. And the guy says, well, that's amazing. I've never heard anything like that, but that still doesn't explain why it has a wooden leg. And this farmer said, you can't eat a special cow all at one time. And so he was just eating it piece by piece, cutting off a leg at a time. Well, you know what? There's no easy way to kill a cow. You just need to kill the thing and butcher it and eat it. Well, likewise, there's no easy way to kill a sacred cow. I'm just going to attack some of the things that I consider to be these doctrines that make the tra tradition and doctrines of man that make the Word of God of none effect. And I'm telling you, there are some terrible, terrible doctrines, I believe, in the body of Christ. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying all these things by way of introduction, but I am not against the church. I am a part of the church, but I'm saying that there is a large segment of the body of Christ that is misrepresenting God. And these doctrines that the church has been teaching, just like Jesus said, they make the Word of God of none effect. 
Did you know Jesus extended mercy towards the publicans, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people that the church were rejecting? He extended mercy towards them. The only people that Jesus really got upset with were the religious people. In Matthew chapter 23, right here in Mark chapter 7, we've already read these verses where he called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. But in Matthew chapter 23, boy, he blasted them. An entire chapter just saying, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like a whited sepulcher. You're like a painted grave. You've been made to look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. And he just blasted them. The only people that Jesus really came against were the religious people of His day who had taken the Word of God and had tacked their traditions onto it. And by doing so, they had made the Word of none effect. They had diluted it. And this is what I experience, and this is what God has raised me up for, is to just teach the pure Word of God and counter a lot of these religious traditions that have just negated the force of God's Word. The very first thing I want to deal with is to teach against what is commonly called the sovereignty of God. And I know by me saying that, some of you just probably gasp like, well, God is sovereign. I mean, that is a foundational doctrine to many people. I will say this. I believe that God is sovereign if you would use sovereign the way it's defined in a dictionary. I mean, a dictionary says that a sovereign is like the head of a state, a monarch or something, if you're talking about over in England where you have a king and a queen and they are the sovereign. There's also sovereign that refers to a coin. We aren't talking about either one of those things. But if you use sovereign as an adjective to describe somebody, the word sovereign means first in rank, order, or authority, uh, premier, if you want to say that God is any of those things, I agree with that 100%. There is nobody greater than God. He is absolute in authority and in power. But religion has redefined sovereign. And again, I challenge you. You go look in a dictionary today and check out what I'm saying. You go look in a dictionary and try and find that sovereign means that you control everything. Nothing happens without your consent. You can't find that definition. But this is what the religious church has redefined the word sovereign as. And when they say that God is sovereign, they say that He controls everything. Nothing happens without His uh, approval. Did you know the United States is a sovereign nation? And that means independent. At one time, we were a colony to Great Britain, but we fought a war. We became independent, and today we are called a sovereign nation. And a sovereign nation has rules and laws that the citizens are supposed to abide by. But because America is sovereign, does that mean that it controls every single thing that goes on in a person's life? No. Just because America is sovereign, that does not mean that every person in this nation is doing exactly what the Constitution of the United States, exactly what the laws 
are saying. No, there are laws and stuff, but the people within this nation break the laws, fall short all of the time. But see, there is a new definition that the church has come up with, and this is what I'm teaching against, is the redefining the religious connotations that have been applied to the word sovereign, where they say that God controls everything. Nothing happens without God either originating it, it was His direct, perfect will, or even the devil has to come and get permission, and so therefore God by, if nothing else, he gives approval to every negative thing. God controls everything. If you believe that, I guarantee you, it is going to take away from you understanding the goodness of God and the graciousness of God. Let's just put it down on a human level. If somehow or another I had the power to control every child or let's just bring it down to your family. Let's just say that you had some child that was born with a birth defect, you know, Down syndrome, something that affected the way that they function and things like this. And if I had the power to make that happen, and, it, and if you knew that I was the one that caused that, I was the one that made your child born with this birth defect, if I was the one who caused your wife or your husband to die at a young age, if I was the one that gave somebody cancer, if I was the one that made a wreck happen and that somebody's going to live a quadriplegic life the rest of their life, and if I had the power, and if I made all of these things happen in your family, what kind of a relationship do you think you would have with me? Even if for some reason you were told that I was doing all of these things for your own benefit, I guarantee you, you wouldn't want to get close to me because you would be afraid that somehow or another I was going to cause some tragedy and hurt you and you would distance yourself from me. Did you know what I'm describing is very descriptive of the way that many people are with the Lord because they've been taught that God is the one that controls all birth defects, that God is the one that makes people die. Their number was up. I've been to so many funerals where they just assume that if a person dies, they couldn't have died if it wasn't God's will. Their number is up. God, it must have been their time. That is not so. The scripture says that God has allotted us 70 years over in Psalms chapter 90 and even 80 years if you're strong. And of course, we know that people can live beyond that. In the Bible, people lived into the hundreds. It's not a maximum. It's a minimum. If a person dies under 70 years, God did not do it. God didn't allow it. There's things that can happen. You can kill yourself by being an alcoholic and having cirrhosis of the liver and die early. You can kill yourself by being a drug addict and overdosing or sharing needles and getting some kind of a disease. You can kill yourself by getting drunk and driving and having a wreck. You can kill yourself by eating yourself to death and not exercising and on and on. You can commit suicide and God does not control these things. I believe that this wrong interpretation, wrong application of quote-unquote the sovereignty of God is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ. It not only misrepresents God and keeps people from really understanding His love because they have attributed terrible, evil acts to God and He is not guilty. That is not what the Word of God teaches. Man, there's so many scriptures that come against this. Let me just deal with one thing over here in 2 Peter chapter 3. And to me, this one verse right here, if you would just think about it, would totally disprove this wrong representation of God being sovereign. 
In 2 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The latter part of this says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can't make it any clearer than this. It is not God's will for a single person to perish, to die and go to hell. That is not God's will. And yet, is it happening? Absolutely. Matter of fact, Jesus said that there would be more people that enter by the broad gate unto destruction than there are by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. Jesus said that the majority of people are not going to accept salvation. Is it because God willed that? There are some people that have actually taken this teaching, the wrong teaching about the sovereignty of God to such an extreme that there are entire denominations that believe you are predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned, and so therefore God chooses who He wants to save. And it doesn't matter if you want to be saved or not. You can't be saved. You're either predestined to salvation or predestined to damnation. Now, that's a very small segment of people who believe that, but if you were going to believe that God is sovereign and that nothing could happen outside of His will, everything He does, everything that happens is either predetermined by God or allowed by God. If you were going to believe that, that would lead you to that conclusion that God just predestined some people to be saved and some people to be damned. That is not what the Scripture teaches. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, I believe it's verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The Word of God teaches that you have a choice. If you make Jesus your Lord, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus has died for the sins of the whole world, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, but not everybody is saved. Why? Because God doesn't force His will upon anyone. He has provided salvation for everyone. Just like it says right here, He is not willing that any should perish. And He has provided salvation for every person who has ever breathed upon this planet. But you have a choice whether you get saved or whether you don't. It is not up to God. So to me, this one thing right here, and I believe that most of Christianity would agree on this point, that Jesus provided salvation for everyone, but His will, which is salvation, does not automatically come to pass. You choose. But then, after you get born again, there are entire amounts. Matter of fact, I would say probably the majority of the body of Christ has fallen for this wrong teaching that God just sovereignly, independent of us, beyond anything to do with us, He just makes whatever happens happen in your life. Now, I know that somebody, if you haven't been religious, if you haven't been polluted by this teaching on the sovereignty of God, you may find it hard to believe that somebody would be saying what I'm saying. But I, I came up under this kind of stuff. I was told at 12 years old when my dad died that God caused this, that God needed 
my dad in heaven more than I needed him and that nothing could happen but what God willed it. And I was taught that God actually killed my dad. He was 54 years old when he died. I was 12 years old, just turned 12, just less than a month when my dad died. And I was told that God is the one that caused that. I actually saw a thing on television. This guy is still on television. If I was to tell his name, probably the majority of people watching my program would know exactly who I'm talking about. And on his program, he interviewed this woman who this woman and her daughter were both abducted by a man, put in the trunk of a car, taken to a remote spot. He raped both of them, and then he laid them on their face and shot both of them in the back of the head. The daughter died. The mother had some severe problems because of it, but she did survive. And she was on this program, and the man who was interviewing her and her were saying, we know that God has a purpose, that there was a reason why God allowed all of this to happen. And they blamed God for abduction, rape, and murder, and assault. And they blamed God for that. I know some of you find this hard to believe, but I'm telling you, there are large segments of the body of Christ that believe that God controls anything and everything. It couldn't happen if God didn't allow it. And that is not true. It is not God who is allowing people to go to hell. In a sense, you could say that, but it's He's made provision. He's died for the sins of the whole world. And it says right here in 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 9, that he is not willing for any to perish. It is not God's will for one single person to go to hell, but they are going to hell by the truckloads. Why? Because God gave us a choice. You could say, well, he's allowing them to go to hell. Well, all he's doing is allowing our choices. He gave us authority. He gave us dominion here on this earth. And if people go to hell, they are going to go there because they chose it. If a person goes to hell, they have climbed over a mountain of obstacles that God put in their way to keep them from going there. Somebody trying to tell them the truth, and yet they just chose to reject it. And so you could say, sit there and say, well, God let them go to hell. Well, all God did was just, all right, He gave you the choice. And if you choose to reject all of the conviction and all of the things that God is sending across your path, trying to get the, the choice to you, well, then you chose Hell, you chose to reject the Lord. You chose to put it off and to say, that's not important. I've got other things. I'd rather go out and party. I'd rather go do this than give my life to the Lord. Those are your choices. And so in a sense, all God is doing is just enforcing your choice. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth the record against you this day that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then he tells you the answer, choose life that you and your seed may live. God gave you the choice. And if you choose to just either reject Him or ignore Him, some people say, well, I didn't reject Him. No, but you ignored Him. You just refused to submit. You wanted to wait until later. Sometime later, I'll get my life right with God. Then you've made choices. And all God does is just enforce your choice. But see, for people to blame God and to say it's God's fault, God chose all of these people to go to hell. That is not true. This says that He wants every person to be saved, but He gave us a choice. 
You know, there are scriptures that talk about that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And again, some people have taken that and amplified it and extrapolated from that that somehow or another, before the foundation of the world, God picks certain people to be saved and certain people to be lost. Again, all of the scriptures that I've used today disprove that. What it is, God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world, and He chose that anybody who would put their faith in Jesus and trust Jesus to forgive their sins and to make them right with God, God chose Jesus, and anyone who chose Jesus gets involved in His choosing. You know, I've got a sister-in-law. My, my brother-in-law, this is my wife's sister and her husband, uh, He's now with the Lord. He's gone to be with the Lord. But at one time, his grandparents were in a primitive Baptist church, which I'm not sure about all of their doctrine, but in this primitive Baptist church, they taught that some people are just predestined to be saved and others are predestined to be damned. And so it was God's choice. You couldn't choose to be saved. It was if God wanted you to be saved and be a godly person, you would be. And if He wanted you to be an ungodly person, you'd be ungodly. That was their doctrine. So because of this, the grandmother of my brother-in-law, she went to this primitive Baptist church and she was saved. She went to church all of the time. But they believed that you were just either predestined to be saved or damned. So she never witnessed to her husband. People who believe this aren't evangelistic because they believe that it's just up to God whether a person gets saved. So it doesn't matter if you go out and share the gospel or not. And as a result, she never even shared the gospel with her husband. Her husband was a, uh, an ungodly man, and she just figured that he was predestined by God to be damned, and so she never shared the gospel with him. They had been married for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. She never shared the gospel with him. And my brother-in-law came along and started witnessing to his grandfather. And when he told his grandfather that Jesus had already paid for his sins, and it was not up to God whether he got saved, it was up to him. He could choose. Whosoever would believe on the Lord would be saved. His grandfather was just shocked. Like, I've been told all my life that I must have been just chosen by God to be a bad person and to go to hell. And my brother-in-law told him no and shared the scriptures with him and showed him that he could choose salvation. It was up to him. And when he heard this, man, it was nearly too good to be true news because he just thought he was a reprobate and that God would have nothing to do. And when he found out that he could choose salvation, that God wanted him to be saved, he wasn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All, not just a pre-selected few, but all should come to repentance. When he heard that, this man, he was in his, I don't know, he was elderly. He was 80 or 90. And he repented and he received salvation. And he had been kept from salvation because he just thought it was up to God whether or not he got saved. No, God doesn't sovereignly choose to save a person and then not save another person. God has chosen to make provision for the sins of the whole world. But some people cooperate with God and make Jesus their Lord and receive salvation. Other people reject it. Other people ignore it and forget it and put it off. And it's their choices that cause them not to receive salvation. But it's not God who chooses this. And because of that, that grandfather of my brother-in-law got born again. When they told the wife about it, she says, Oh, well, you must have been one of the chosen ones then. 
Man, that is just wrong, wrong, wrong. See, tradition and doctrines of men were making the word of none effect. You know, any rational person, if God was the one who was causing all of this tragedy, all of the wars, all of the rape, all of the destruction, all of the heartbreak, the suicide, and everything, if God was controlling all of this ungodliness that we see in our world, if God was a person that was a member of any civilized country on this earth, they would put him in prison and execute him and put him to death for the things that God is blamed for. And I know some people right now think, well, I can show you some scriptures that show you that God does all these things. Let me start dealing with some of these, and I just want to show you that this is a misinterpretation of scripture. In James chapter 1, in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let, her, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And so people will take this and say that if you want patience, and then they'll talk about the benefits of patience and how that, you know, through faith and patience you inherit the promises, Hebrews chapter 6 and other places. They will talk about the benefits of patience and they'll say, if you want patience, what you're praying for is trouble and tribulation because tribulation worketh patience. You know, I agree with what the Scripture says, but I do not agree with the religious interpretation where they say that God, in an effort to make you more patient and more godly, is going to put trials and tribulations in your life. This does not say that God sends trials and tribulations to make you better. Matter of fact, let me turn over and read this verse to you out of Romans chapter 15. And in verse 4... In Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. The Scriptures gives us patience. You know, I'm not going to teach on patience right here. I've got a great teaching on this, but here I'm going to just condense it down and say something that I don't have time to verify because I'm wanting to get back to the book of James. But patience is nothing but faith over a prolonged period of time. It's faith that has that isn't just a burst of faith, but it is a prolonged faith. Well, where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. This says patience comes through Scripture. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Patience doesn't come through tribulations. And that's what some people take from this James passage where it says, if you fall into divers temptations, count it all joy because tribulation worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. And so they say that God is the source of the tribulation. God is not the source of your tribulation. Over in the book of Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower sowing the seed, it says afflictions and persecutions come against the Word to steal the Word from you. How clear can you make it? Tribulations, problems are not given to make you better. If tribulations, trials and tribulations made you better, then the people who've been tribulated the most would be the most godly. And that is not so. I can show you some people who've been through tribulation and came out of it godly 
and we're stronger and better because of it. But I can show you bunches of people that tribulation has ruined them and made them turn away from God and renounce God because of the hardship in their life. Tribulations do not make you perfect. Patience, faith over a prolonged period of time, belief in God, trusting God will make you perfect and entire. And it's true that when you get into a bad situation, if you choose, and this is again, if you choose to continue in your faith, in your patience, and stand and fight against those things that Satan has come against you, you're going to come out with a testimony. You will be stronger and better because of it. But the tribulation wasn't designed by God and ordered by God and sent into your life by God to make you better. You are tribulated and tr problems and stuff came at you because you live in a fallen world and Satan is out to destroy and steal the word from you. But if you will resist the devil and fight and overcome him, you'll be stronger on the other side. You know, I can relate this to like when I was in the army. I was trained, I was drafted and I was trained how to fight and how to throw hand grenades and how to shoot a gun and how to do all of these things. I was trained how to kill a person with my hands in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and I was trained. But did you know, when you first got into Vietnam, I was in Vietnam, and when I first got into Vietnam, a person who had only been through training and had been trained, but they hadn't ever put it into practice, they had never actually fought the enemy, those people were dangerous because they didn't have any real-life application. It was just, in a sense, like book knowledge. It was like training. But a person who went into battle with nothing but training, it's going to be different when they survive a battle. When they come out of the battle and they've learned how to use their weapon, they've learned how to throw the hand grenade, they've learned how to do things, they are going to be much more proficient. They are going to be much more effective as a soldier on the other side of a battle. But what would happen? if they ran out and saw the enemy coming in, they said, oh, you enemy, you are sent by the U.S. government to make me a better soldier. And so they go out and try and embrace the enemy because somehow or another this enemy has come to make them better. No, the enemy's not sent by the U.S. government. The enemy's not sent to make you better. The enemy's sent to kill you. And if you go out and embrace them, you're going to die. But it is true that if you fight against the enemy and put into practice what has been taught you, you will be a better soldier on the other side. That's all this is saying. God did not cause the tribulation. God doesn't cause your problems. God is the one who gives you faith and patience through Scripture. But it's one thing to have just head knowledge. If you would apply what God teaches you through the Word to your tribulation, if the doctor tells you you're going to die and you stand and say, no, I am healed by the stripes of Jesus, and if you believe God and overcome that thing through faith, then I guarantee you, you are going to be stronger on the other side. You will be even better. You will be made perfect and entire. But the cancer didn't come to make you perfect. The cancer came to kill you. It was from your enemy. Is it true that you can become better if you stand and use your faith and overcome a problem? Absolutely. But the problem wasn't ordained by God. It wasn't made by God. It wasn't allowed by God. We have an enemy that is going about seeking whom he may devour. But if you fight against him and overcome it, it's going to make you stronger. It's going to give you a testimony. And you can be better off. I agree. 
but God isn't the source of it. This doctrine that teaches that everything that happens, that God caused it, is wrong. And anyway, for time's sake, let me jump down a few verses, but here it's in the same context. He had just said that if you uh, want to be made perfect and have patience, then you're going to have to overcome some tribulation. You're going to have to put your faith to work. You're going to have to see it work, and you'll be better off because of it. In that same chapter, in the same context, look at this. It says in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Remember that that's what it was talking about here in verse 2. It says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Now verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is cried, he tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And again, I agree with this, but people have perverted this by saying, since it works out for good, it must have been from God. God is the source of your problems. God is the source of this financial problem. God's the source of this sickness, of this birth defect, of all these things. That is not what this says. And the very next verse, verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. How clear can you get it? When you come into these temptations, into these things, don't say that they are from God. And yet this is exactly what the religious church has been doing, is saying that everything that happens in your life is from God. He controls everything. This says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. In other words, he's saying, don't err in this. And yet the very thing that he told us not to err in is what the evangelical church is erring in big time today. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. And so this is saying, don't err. Every good gift is from God. Every perfect gift is from God. These tribulations, these temptations, they aren't from God. They are from the devil. Satan is trying to destroy you. And yet the religious church has come along and said, Oh no, God has given you these problems because He loves you. <laughs> what kind of friend would I be if I loved you so I just hit you with the cancer? I just killed somebody in your family because I love you so much. I guarantee you, you'd think you don't love me to kill me and hit me with the cancer. And yet, see, people are saying, oh, God controls everything, and, and we know God is good and that God loves us. But then they, on the other hand, they will embrace cancer. They will embrace death, and they'll say, God did this for some redemptive purpose. No, He didn't. This is the enemy that comes against us to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John chapter 10, it says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Don't err, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Here's real simple theology. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's the devil. And yet it's amazing. The religious church has 
flip-flopped all this, has inverted it, has turned it around to where they call good evil and evil good. If you sit here and say that, man, God does miracles today. God wants to heal you. God wants to raise someone from the dead. He wants to raise you up off your deathbed. There are large amounts of Christians that will say, that's of the devil. God doesn't do that today. But they'll turn around and say, if you've got cancer, if you're dying, if you're suffering, if you're miserable, if your life is so hard, that's God. They call good evil and evil good. This is what Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, that in the last days people will call good evil and evil good, bitter sweet and sweet bitter. They will pervert things. And it's terrible when the world does that and calls homosexuality good, but if you are just staying with one person, then no, that's bad. It's bad enough when the lost people, the secular world does it, but what's even worse is that the church today is calling evil good and good evil. They will call sickness, disease, poverty, hardship, pain, suffering. Oh, that's good. God's doing this to you because He loves you. But if you sit there and preach that God causes us always to triumph in the Lord Jesus Christ, the religious church will come out against you and say, that's of the devil. If you really believe that God controls everything, well, then why resist? Why do anything? God's will is going to come to pass with or without you. If you really believe that God gave you this cancer, then why would you go to the doctor and try and get out of God's will? Why would you take medication? Why would you have a surgery that would get you out of God's will? If God gave you that cancer, let it run its course. Learn it. Just suffer the maximum. If God's the one that's caused all of the problems in your life, if God's the one who's taken your finances away and caused your business to fail and you've lost your job, if God's the one that controlled it, well, then why would you go look for another job and try and get out of God's will? Hopefully you understand what I'm saying is ludicrous. It's stupid. Nobody in their right mind would say this, but this is exactly what religious people are saying, that God put this sickness on me. Well, if He did, then let it run its course. Don't go to the doctor. Don't take medicine. Don't try and get over it. It's just, it's undefensible. I do not understand how people can sit there and buy into this stuff. It's only religion that could convince a person that something evil is good and something that's good is evil. And that is not true. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Don't err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift comes from God. Not the bad gifts, the good gifts. John 10, 10, the devil is the one who steals, kills, and destroys. But Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. And when you start saying that God is the source of everything, He either originates it or He has to give permission to the devil to do anything, then you make God guilty. And this is one reason that people are running from God by the droves instead of running to Him. If we really knew how good God was, if we really understood His love, it would solve all of our problems. But religious tradition, traditions and doctrines of man have watered down, diluted, negated the goodness of God because of the stuff that they teach. Man, those are big statements that I've made, but I believe that to be absolutely true. I know some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say, Romans 8, 28, that we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose? 
I've heard people that don't know any other scripture in the Bible who will quote this scripture. I mean, it's amazing how people that don't have anything to do with God will sit here and somehow or another they've heard this, that all things work together for good. And from that, they extrapolate. That means that they take a, a statement and make other truths from it that they have pulled out of there that aren't necessarily in there. This does not say that everything comes from God. That is not what it says. This does not say that everything comes from God. It just says that it works together for good, but there's some qualifications on that. So let me deal with this. Romans 8, 28, and we know. It starts with a conjunction. The word and is a conjunction. That means it's linking statements together. This is not an independent statement that everything works together for good. Everything doesn't work together for good if you don't put it into its proper context and do what this verse is saying. So the very first thing, it's a conjunction. It says, and we know. What was the previous statement that it is linking this to? Let me turn back and read this to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then comes verse 28, and we know. In other words, if you are operating in this Holy Spirit infused, empowered intercession, we know that all things work together for good. But let's say it this way. If you aren't operating in this kind of intercession where the Holy Spirit is making intercession through you with groanings that can't be uttered, then things aren't going to work together for good. This isn't just a statement that everything works together for good. Anybody who says that is manipulating, twisting, perverting Scripture. Everything doesn't work together for good. You know, I heard a man one time he came to a full gospel businessman's meeting that I was doing the praise and worship at this. I had my guitar and I was singing and leading the praise and worship. And this guy was the speaker. And he came in and he said that he had just come from a funeral of two teenagers who had died in a car wreck. They had been drinking and doing drugs. They got to speeding. It was raining. It was wet. They were going way too fast. Their reflexes weren't good. They didn't make a corner. They went off the road. They hit a telephone pole, and it killed both of them. And he had just come from the funeral, and at the funeral, he preached on Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. He says, we don't understand the ways of God. They're higher than our ways. But we know that all things work together for good, that this couldn't have happened if God didn't will it. And I got so mad, I could spit bullets. Man, I, I just, I was angry. This man was saying that two teenagers who did not know God, who weren't born again, they went to hell, and yet somehow or another, God caused this. God caused them to get drunk. God caused them to do drugs. God told them to speed. And God forced that, this wreck and killed them and sent them to hell to work some good thing. And somehow or another, it works together for good. That is not what this verse is saying. It does not say all things work together for good, period. It starts with saying for those who've been operating in intercession. And I'm not going to take time to go back to this, but if you go into the 26th verse where it says the Holy Spirit 
helps our infirmities. The word there, it's a compound word of either three or four Greek words run together to form one new word. And it literally means that the Holy Spirit takes hold together with us and helps our infirmities. He takes hold together with us. Now that's very descriptive. The Holy Spirit doesn't do this intercession automatically without us. And we can't do it without Him. But He takes hold together with us. When a person starts interceding in a proper way with a pure heart, and you know, I believe that part of this is speaking in tongues. I'm not going to make a major issue out of that. I believe that the groaning in the Spirit that's mentioned in verse 27 is even beyond that. But I believe it starts by speaking in tongues. And when you're speaking in tongues and interceding, and you are interceding with all of your heart, the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you, and then supernatural things happen. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, my wife, I walked into our bedroom, and she was laying on the bed praying in tongues. And I said, what's the matter? And she had a real severe pain right here in her... I guess diaphragm or something, and it was on her side and going all around in her stomach. She just had some severe pain. So I prayed with her, and we believed God for healing, and she felt better. So she got up and started doing some things, but it didn't completely go away, and it came back. And anyway, over the course of a day, it was a Saturday, and I happened to be at home, and over the entire course of that day, for 11 hours, she had this pain, and it eventually got so bad that she just was sitting there with tears in her eyes, and it was hurting. And so we started praying. And you know what? I did exactly what this verse said. I had already prayed. I'd already interceded, but we weren't seeing the results that we wanted. So both of us sat down, and we just started praying in tongues. And I don't know. We prayed for probably 45 minutes in tongues. And as we were praying in tongues, I was quoting this verse in my mind. I was saying, Lord, we need help here. I don't know what the problem is. Is this something that's really severe? Uh, what do we need to do? Is there something that we aren't doing right? And I said, I just don't know how to pray as I ought, which is exactly what this says, that the Holy Spirit helps our infirmities because we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so... I was praying and saying, God, help me. Grab hold together with me and help me. And I was interceding like this. And all of a sudden, we saw a breakthrough. It had taken about 11 hours, but did you know that I mean, boom, just like that, it was gone. And that's been weeks ago. She's never had another problem. It's over. We don't know what it was. We didn't go to the doctor. We didn't take any medicine. We interceded and the Holy Spirit helped us. And you know what? It worked together for good. Because now we exercised our faith. We stood and because of it, I've now got a testimony how we overcame something. I'm sharing it on television with people all around the world and it's worked together for good. But be only because I operated in intercession and the Holy Spirit took hold together with me. So let me say it this way, that if you aren't seeking the Lord, if you aren't interceding and even interceding to a point that the Holy Spirit energizes and takes hold together with you and you begin to start seeing a breakthrough. If you aren't doing that, that problem you're facing is not going to work together for good. It was designed by the devil to steal the word from you and to destroy you. 
It is wrong, 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 wrong. I can't say this strong enough to say that it is wrong what the some of the, a large part of the church is preaching that everything that happens to you works together for good. It doesn't. It only works together for good if you are operating in intercession in a way that the Holy Spirit energizes it, empowers it, and only then will you see things work together for good. So back to Romans 8, 28. And because of this intercession, we know that all things work together for good. And then there's two other qualifications on this. In this same verse, it says it works together for good to them that love God. Did you know what? If you don't love God, all things aren't going to work together for good. And again, people just take that little phrase out of context. Well, we know that all things work together for good. That's a lie. All things don't work together for good unless you've been letting the Holy Spirit energize and empower your intercession, unless you love God. If you don't love God, everything that happens in your life isn't going to work together for good. If you're a God-hater, and if you, are, you don't even have to totally reject God or be a God-hater, just be a person who's ignored God. You have nothing to do with God. Everything's not working together for good. That is a misrepresentation of what this verse says. Again, you have to be religious to accept that everything works together for good. Open up your eyes, look around and see the rape, the murder, the suffering, the plundering, how people are running from God because of the hardships and the pains, because they've been taught that God caused this. And man, they don't want anything to do with a God like that. That's wrong. It, you have to intercede. Then it says you have to love God. And then the next thing it says to them who are the called according to His purpose. What is the purpose of the Lord? 1 John chapter 3, I believe it's verse 8. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest that He might destroy the works of the devil. In other words, if you are the called according to His purpose, if you are functioning according to the purpose of Jesus, then you are out to destroy the works of the devil. This goes right along in James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you could say that things only work together for good to those who have been interceding, to those who love God, and to those who are resisting the devil, fighting against the devil, out to destroy the works of the devil. But if you're cooperating with the devil, it's not going to work together for good. If you have been taught that, well, this couldn't have happened if God didn't allow it. There must be a purpose in me having cancer. There must be a purpose in me being a quadriplegic. God is working this together for good somehow or another. If you've been taught that and therefore you aren't resisting the devil, you're submitted unto him, then you aren't called according to the purpose of the Lord. It's not going to work together for good. Man, this is just so simple. It, it's amazing to me how this is so clear. It starts with the conjunction and. That makes this statement about all things working together for good dependent on the previous verses. Talking about intercession, the Holy Spirit taking hold together with you in intercession. And then it says it works together for good to them who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Those are three qualifications that people just take this verse out of context and just make a blanket statement that everything works together for good. No, it doesn't. It does not. That is a wrong statement. It's only if you put it into its proper context. And I tell you, this sovereignty of God teaching just destroys people's faith. 
It makes them submit and yield to things that are of the devil. And you know, I, I know this. I've, I know that some of you think that I'm being really hard, but I'm hard because I've seen the damage that this does. There was actually a man who taught that Satan is God's messenger boy. And his premise was that Satan is like a dog, a mad dog on a leash. He can't do anything without God's permission. So if Satan is attacking you, even though it may not be God, it's the devil, he couldn't have done it if he didn't have permission. God's the one who loosed him on you. That's wrong. That is against everything that the Bible teaches. But that's what I was brought up under. And I heard this man teach this message, Satan is God's messenger boy, and it nearly killed me. I really hadn't got time to go through this whole story, but years later, after I got back out of Vietnam, Jamie and I were getting, getting married, and this same guy who preached this message about Satan is God's messenger boy, he came to our Baptist church and started preaching that God is sovereign, that God does these tragic things. If you're really going to be a great person, you've got to suffer greatly. That's wrong. And anyway, he was preaching that, and I didn't know very much of the Word, and so I was submitting to it. And he told me that I was going to become a human vegetable and be in a coma for eight years, and that God was going to teach me things. And when I came out the other side, this was going to make me, uh, you know, a great person. Anyway, there's other things that happened. I hadn't got time to share with you, but I had two dreams that were demonic, and yet he came along and put all of these things together, and it was like a perfect storm. All of these dreams, I had a person from Houston that I'd never seen come and prophesy to me, and then this guy said this, and then I went to get my physical so that I, we could get our marriage license, and it turned out I had uh, yellow jaundice, which isn't life-threatening unless you go out and just continue to work. I was pouring concrete for a living, and they told me I had to lay flat on my back for six weeks, and I was, wasn't about to do that. I was going to work, and they said, you could go into a coma. Well, then this guy comes along and says, God's going to put you into a coma for eight years. And because I didn't know the Word of God very much, and I was taught that God does these things to you, I was that close to yielding to this. I was out to eat with this guy and 15 people from the church, and Jamie and I were sitting there, and he was telling me all of these things. But the devil always overplays his hand. And I didn't know very much, but this guy was telling me the worst part is that God had put him on a fast from the Word for eight years and wouldn't let him read the Word. And told he was telling me that God wouldn't let him read the Word. And he was a preacher, and he couldn't study the Word. I didn't know much, but I knew that wasn't right. Man, I knew that we're supposed to meditate in the Word day and night and... We're supposed to esteem it more than our daily food and everything. And when he said that, I just stood up and rejected it. I said, I renounce this. I rebuke it. And Jamie and I walked out of that restaurant, walked out of that church. And if we hadn't have done that, Satan would have killed me through this. I saw it kill that girl. I, it nearly killed me. And I'm telling you, this doctrine is deadly. If you think that God is the source of all of your problems, you're wrong. That is misrepresenting God. Let me go to some other scriptures that I've heard people quote before. Look at this in Psalms chapter 78 and in verse 49, talking about how that the Lord delivered the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and how He brought these plagues upon the Egyptians. It says in verse 49, He cast upon them the fierceness of His anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. 
Now, see, again, I don't have a problem with what this verse says. I'm fixing to explain it in a minute. But people have made it say things it doesn't say. They say evil angels. God used demons. God sent the devil. God is the one who's controlling the devil. The devil couldn't do something if God didn't allow it. That is not what that says. Look at another verse over here in, in Isaiah chapter 45. And in verse 7, it says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all of these things. And people have made that verse say things that it doesn't say. That See right here, God creates evil. All of the evil in this world is created by God. That is not what it says. You know how you can simply answer this? How, and there's other scriptures. I'm just picking on a couple that I've heard some people misuse and twist and pervert. Here's a real simple answer. Look at this in Jeremiah chapter 24. The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket was very good figs, had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, The figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. And then the Lord went on and He used this as an illustration to teach something to Jeremiah. But here's the point I'm making right here. In this third verse, He says, What do you see, Jeremiah? And He says, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. that could not be eaten. They are so evil. So He called these figs evil. Does this mean that they were demonic? That this, does this mean that they were demonic figs, demon-possessed figs? No, it's obvious. It even uses the terminology up here that they could not be eaten. They were so bad at the end of verse 2. Did you know if you look the word evil up in the dictionary, it just one of the definitions is bad. And in the Old English, in the King James, you know, sometimes the words have changed over the centuries and we now use the word evil nearly always to refer to some kind of a devil, demonic type of thing. But the word evil just means bad. So when they sent evil angels among the Egyptians, these weren't demon spirits. They were angelic, godly spirits, but they accomplished a bad thing. They brought plagues. They turned the ground, the dust into lice. They turned, frogs came up out of the river, turned the water into blood. Hail fell out of the sky. Fire ran along upon the ground. There was darkness. And then the, the firstborn were killed by a godly angel not by a demonic angel. He didn't send a demonic angel. It was a godly angel. And then over in Isaiah chapter 45 where he says, I, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. This evil isn't talking about he creates demonic stuff. He, he's the source of all evil. It's just saying that when he creates light, that means anything that's not light is darkness. When he creates peace, then anything that's not peace is evil or bad. He's the one that says, this is good, this is bad. God is not the one who creates evil in the sense that He causes evil. He just created, when He says, this is good, then automatically the opposite of that is bad.
For people to take these verses and to teach that somehow or another God is the source of all evil, that in itself is evil. To credit God with all of the mayhem, the rape, the murder, the perversion, the homosexuality, if you're going to believe that God is sovereign and if you use it in the way that I'm teaching against this extreme sovereignty, well, then God is the one that makes everybody a homosexual. God's the one that makes everybody commit adultery. God's the one that makes everybody murder. God's the one that creates all the jihadists that are killing people and terrorizing people. Are you going to blame God for beheading Christians? and say that, you know, all things work together for good, that God caused this, it was God's will that these Christians be beheaded. Of course not. Man, you have to be religious. You have to be blinded to be able to operate in that kind of stuff. God is not the source of all of this evil. You know, you could turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and in verse six, chapter 16 and 18, it talks about an evil spirit from the Lord came and afflicted Saul. And I've heard people take that and say that God used some kind of a demonic spirit to afflict Saul. No, God doesn't use the devil. God and the devil are not in, in cahoots. They are not helping each other. The devil is not helping God. He is fighting against God. He's rebelling at God. But it says an evil spirit. It was evil, again, is used in the sense that Jeremiah 24 is talking about. It was evil in the sense that it produced something bad. This was a godly spirit, an angelic spirit, but it was afflicting Saul with punishment. He had rejected the Lord and God was tormenting him. Somebody says, well, that's terrible. So you're saying that God torments people. Under the Old Covenant, there was a difference between the Old Covenant and the new covenant. And in the old covenant, God did smite people with sickness, with disease. And in this instance, Saul, he punished him because Saul had become evil. He actually got to where he was worshiping and going through a witch and doing things to uh, draw up Samuel from the dead. And Saul had become rebellious. And there was a godly angel that was persecuting him and tormenting him. So God did that. But it wasn't wrong. It was just. He was sinning. God hit people with things. But here, you will sometimes hear people that are into this sovereignty of God teaching and blame God for everything. They will quote these Old Testament examples where God smote people with leprosy and things like this. A death angel went out and killed 186,000 Syrians in one night during the time of Hezekiah. And they will say, see, God's going to do these things. God's punishing you. God's doing this. In the Old Covenant, He did it. But in the New Covenant, we have been redeemed from all of this. All of our punishment, all of the wrath of God against sin has been placed upon Jesus. And God is not going to afflict people like this today. In uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, they sang, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. People take that as saying peace among men, but that's not what this is saying. Matter of fact, Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 10, don't, don't think I'm come to send peace on the earth. I didn't come to send peace, but a sword. A house is going to be divided, two against three, the father against the child, and etc. Jesus didn't come to send peace among men. This was talking about peace from God towards man. 
God placed our punishment upon Jesus, and God isn't smiting people under the new covenant the way that he did under the old covenant because Jesus came and took the wrath and the punishment of God, and we are not being judged by that like that today. So in the Old Testament, he sent evil angels, not demonic angels, but just godly angels that were bringing punishment upon the Jews. He sent an angel to punish Saul. But none of those things were blessings. They were curses. They were under the curse of the law. If a person didn't live godly, then the wrath of God came upon them. But in the New Testament, we've been redeemed from the curse. Let me read this to you out of Galatians Chapter 3, in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So this says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is that if you sin, instead of the blessing coming upon you, the wrath of God comes upon you. And so there were times that God sent angels. You could say evil angels, as in Psalms chapter 78, verse 49, but they weren't demonic. They were just godly angels bringing wrath and punishment upon people because of their rebellion and rejection of God. But under the New Testament, God is not going to do that to us because Christ redeemed us from bearing punishment and curse. You know, over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is the most literal fulfillment you can get of Galatians 3.13. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, lists the blessings of keeping the law. Verses 15 through 68 list all of the curses that will come upon you if you don't keep the law. And for those of you who aren't very good at math, let me just point out that Verses 15 through 68 are more numerous than verses 1 through 14. There's more curses than there are blessings. And the blessing was totally dependent upon your performance. In Genesis, or in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, it says, uh, It shall come to pass if, that makes this totally thing, this to all of these promises conditional upon performance. It shall come to pass if, Thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all His commandments. Now, some people see, will teach, oh, yes, you've got to live godly in order for God to move, but you can't be perfect. Just do the best you can, and, you know, God grades on a curve. Maybe you don't make 100%, but if you were in the top 10%, God will round it up and you pass. No, this says you have to observe to do all of the commandments. And if you don't observe to do all of them, then instead of the blessings of verses 1 through 14, you get the curses of verses 15 through 68. Now, this needs to be interpreted in the light of the New Testament because, again, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You cannot get any more literal fulfillment of the curse of the law than Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. Christ redeemed me from this. And the way that the New Testament believers should read Deuteronomy 28 isn't to say that if I observe to hearken diligently and observe to do all of these commandments, then these blessings will come. But here's the way the New Testament believer should read Deuteronomy 28. 
And they should say, it is coming to pass since Jesus hearkened diligently to observe and to do all of the commandments. And since I have put faith in him and I am now joint heirs with him, that all of these blessings are coming upon me and overtaking me because of what Jesus did. And then when you get down to verses 15 through 68, and it says all of these curses will come upon you, the New Testament believer can read this by saying that these curses will not come upon me because Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. And you can read everything that's written as a curse and turn it into a blessing because I'm redeemed from this curse. The blasting, Blasting is a damaging high wind, such as a tornado or hurricane. I can rebuke those things. I'm delivered from those. Those aren't for me. Mildew is a curse. And the botch and emrods and all of these other things that I don't even know what they are. And over in, I believe it's verse 63, somewhere around, or in verse 60, it says, Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou was afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So this is talking about every sickness and every disease. Even if they weren't, uh, you know, functional back in those days, if we have AIDS today, if we have some kind of a new strand of Ebola and all of these kind of things, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything, even if it's not written in the book of law, any sickness, any disease is a curse. I'm redeemed from it. You know, it's just like if you had a big board here in front of us, and if on one side you wrote blessings, and on the other side you wrote curses, and then you put a line down the middle. So over here, Genesis, I mean, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14 are the blessings. And blessings here, and let me just read some of these. These are the blessings that will come upon thee. In verse 3, you shall be blessed in the city, blessed in the field. Verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, the fruit of thy ground, the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. That would be like your wallet, the money you have on you, and then your bank account, savings account, where you store the rest of it. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in. Blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. You're blessed coming and going. It doesn't matter which direction you're going. You're just blessed everywhere. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Every one attack that comes against you, they are going to flee seven ways. You're going to have seven times greater blessings than whatever somebody tries to come against you. In verse... 8, the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. He will establish you a holy people. You'll lend unto many nations. You shall not borrow, etc., etc. So again, remember, you got blessings over here, curses over here, lying down the middle. These are the blessings. Health, prosperity, victory, joy, peace. These are good. These are blessings. And then over here, curses are sickness, disease, anguish, depression, discouragement, the botch, mildew, emrods, blasting, on and on and on. All of these things are listed as curses. And yet sovereignty of God teaching today has turned this around and said, oh, being healed and believing that God heals today, that's of the devil. This is over here on the curse side. It's a, it's a curse to be well. It's a 
cursed to have prosperity. Prosperity is of the devil. And they list all of these things as curses. And then they put over here sickness, blasting, mildew, emrod, suffering, pain, sorrow. This is all of God. It's perverted. It's wrong. I'm telling you, God is not the source of your sickness and disease. Man, how clear does it have to get? I pray that that's not you. I pray that you would reject this weird, abnormal, extreme teaching on the sovereignty of God. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.